Let's turn in our Bibles now to Micah chapter 5. We'll be reading this, this um, evening, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And our sermon will be looking at the calling of Saul to be the king. And Micah 5 is one of those great prophecies of King Jesus, his coming and his reign. So let's look at Micah chapter 5 together this evening. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Amen. Let's pray again as we come to God's word together. Lord, we pray tonight that you would open your word to us. We know that your word is beautiful, your word is deep, and Lord, these are the, this is the word that we need. We pray that through your spirit you would help us to understand and to see the depths of the riches of who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would teach us your truth and that you would use that truth to transform our lives. We pray that you would do this good work for your glory through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel 9. Actually, 9 and 10. We'll be reading 1 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1, and we'll read all the way over to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 16. I know it's a longer passage than we're used to, but it is one story. So we need to read it from beginning to end to get the main or get the, the whole point here. And as we read, I want you to think about something. How does God show that he's in control of choosing a king? How does God show he's in control of choosing a king? Let's start then in chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the, hill, the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, 
Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you, for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite, from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. <clears throat> As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come 
to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a prophet, a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Well, if you remember where we've been recently in Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we saw Israel asking for a king. And when they were asking for a king, they were rejecting God as their king. It's a very sad passage in the book because we saw also that when God promised to give them their king, he was actually handing Israel over to their own sin. But we also saw in that chapter that God would bring great blessing through Israel's sin by giving us King Jesus. And God would even cover the very sin of rejecting him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Samuel 9 and 10 that we just read are the first steps in God's plan of judgment and grace through a king. Israel may have rejected God, but God hasn't given up on them, and he shows that throughout this passage. He shows that he is sovereignly, lovingly in control. The main idea of this passage is that the Lord sovereignly appoints and equips his king. He sovereignly appoints and equips his king. We'll see four points here as we look at God's control. We'll see God's providence in verses 1 through 14. We'll see God's plan in verses 15 to 27. Then we'll look at God's appointing in chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. And finally, at God's equipping in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 10 as well. Let's look first at God's providence in verses 1 to 14. We first meet Kish and his son Saul. And as the audience reading 1 Samuel now, we're expecting to meet Israel's new king. God has promised to send one, and the first people we meet are Kish and Saul. And here's a family that fits the bill, right? Kish is a man of wealth, or you can translate a man of valor. He's a, he's a great man. He's not, it's true he's not from one of the big tribes in Israel, but Kish has leadership qualities. And his son, Saul, he looks like a king. Notice what it says. 
He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He looks like a king that any other nation would love to have. But almost immediately, the story takes an unexpected turn because in verses 3 to 10, we follow Saul and his servant as they walk all over central Israel trying to find runaway donkeys. Uh, it's, It's not wasted time, though. It's not wasted time. It is God's perfect timing and plan. We see the details of God's plan starting to fall into place in verse 6. Just when Saul is ready to give up and go home, just when he's ready to go home, his servant realizes that they are right next to the city where the man of God lives. And this man of God can help them. And when Saul worries about the present they should bring, the servant just so happens to have a quarter of a shekel of silver left. And then it turns out that Samuel, this man of God, has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And finally, when Saul and his servant enter the city, who should they meet but Samuel on his way to the high place for the sacrifice? None of these events are coincidence. All of this is providence. This is God working all things according to the counsel of his own will. All things. And this story illustrates this. God is completely in control of the donkeys and of Saul and of Samuel. And he uses all of them to bring about his plan of appointing a king over Israel. It's worth pointing out that Saul had no idea of God's purpose at this point. Uh, All the other times that he's gone after lost donkeys, he hasn't come back as a king. He has no idea what God has in store for him. But Saul probably had lots of time later to reflect on God's providence. As he did that, many of the steps undoubtedly became much clearer to him. He would have been able to see God's timing and God's guiding in all of these little details in these few days. There's an application there for us that even though God won't guide any of us to be the next king of Israel, God is still at work in the same ways in our lives, perfectly guiding and controlling. And sometimes we are able to look back like Saul and see God's work clearly in our lives. Uh, But also, so often we don't know. And we may actually never know what God's plan is for us at a particular time. But we can trust that our good God is using all things for our good according to his perfect plan. Saul doesn't yet know what is happening, but Samuel does, because God has revealed his plan to Samuel. That's what we see next, is God's plan in verses 15 to 27. God reveals his plan for Saul in verses 15 to 17, and then Samuel acts on that plan in verses 18 to 27. And verses 15 to 16 are are like a flashback, telling us what's already happened, right? Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God's control, his providence is evident again in this In this declaration, he says, I will send to you a man. It's not that Saul will come. It's that I will send to you a man. 
And Samuel's response is clearly laid out. Samuel, you go and anoint him as king. But what stands out most in God's plan here is his compassion for his people. It's all through these verses here. Notice the way God describes Israel. My people. He says that many times. Saul will say, my people. I have seen my people. This is the compassionate covenant God speaking, and he is calling Israel, his people, in the face of their sin. Remember that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel was consciously breaking their covenant with God. They didn't want God to be their king anymore. And yet here in the very next chapter, God continues to lovingly identify them as his people despite their sin. We also see God's compassion for his people because he appoints Saul to be their savior, right? He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. God knows what his people need. They need protection from their enemies, and God graciously provides a savior. That leads us to see the greatest expression of God's compassion here in these verses. He loves and cares for his people in their suffering. Look at the end of verse 16. This is the reason he's done all these things. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. God cares for his people, and he listens to their cry for help. I think we're meant to think back to the time of the Exodus when God heard and saved his people. Listen to Exodus chapter 2 and listen how careful or how similar it is to what God has said here in Samuel. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is compassionate toward his people in the time of Exodus and in the time of Samuel because this is who he is. This, and this is who he has promised to be for them in the covenant. God's compassion for his people in 1 Samuel 9 comes from his unchanging character and his unchanging covenant. But are you surprised to hear God's words here? Are you surprised to hear his compassion given what God said in 1 Samuel 8 about Israel's sin and the judgment he was going to bring? We'd almost expect God here to remind Samuel about his judgment. To say something like, yeah, here's the guy I told you about who's going to make life hard for my people. They're going to be his slaves, and they're going to regret that they ever wanted him instead of me. I can imagine that might be how we might react in the face of ungratefulness and even sin, but that's not how God says things. Here again, we see the amazing character of God. It's true he is just, and what he said in the previous chapters will happen but he is also loving. He is a God who loves his people and seeks their good in and through their sin. So we get a good look here in these verses at the character and the plan of God. The rest of chapter 9, Samuel then carries out God's loving plan for Israel and for Saul. We're going to look at the details here much more quickly. Uh, Notice that Samuel begins to treat Saul with the honor of a king. 
Listen to Samuel's words in verse 20. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul can't figure out why Samuel thinks he deserves this kind of honor from all of Israel. After all, he's from one of the smallest clans of one of the smallest tribes. But Samuel isn't done honoring Saul. Samuel gives Saul the the ancient Israelite equivalent of the VIP treatment. We can see it in the rest of the chapter. He gives Saul a place of honor at the feast. He gives Saul the best cut of meat. He lets Saul sleep at his house. And at the end of the chapter, he reveals that he has a special word from God for Saul. Saul must be pretty confused at this point. He just came to ask about the donkeys. And Samuel has been treating him like he's the most important person he's ever met. But Samuel is treating Saul the way that God sees Saul. Samuel is starting to treat Saul like the king that God himself has chosen. That's what we see next in the passage is God's appointing of his king in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10. We see God appointing Saul first in the anointing. God appoints Saul to be king using the sign of anointing. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it on his head and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? We know in the Old Testament, anointing with oil was a sign that someone or something was set apart for God's service. Up to this point in the Old Testament, only things or people related to God's worship had been anointed. You can think about the priests, starting with Aaron and his sons and all the way down to this time. Or also the tabernacle and the furniture inside of it was also anointed with oil. In both cases, the people are the things that were being set apart. They're being declared to be holy for service to God. And that's what's happening here with Saul. This is the first time uh, a leader has been anointed, a king, but it's the same idea. Saul is being set apart to serve God as the king. It's interesting to note that even though Israel wanted a a king like all the nations, what they receive is is so much better. And we see that in the anointing because they get a king who serves God the king, who's set apart to serve God. But anointing was more than just a symbol of being set apart. It was also a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit for the work that was necessary. So it's really a, a sign and a promise that God will give this man Saul what is necessary to rule on God's behalf. God has given Saul a great task to be prince over Israel, his heritage. And God has given Saul a sign and a promise that he will help him. God also goes further to give Saul assurance that he has anointed him to be king. And he does this by giving Saul three signs. We see those signs in verses 1 through 6. But just before we look at the details of the signs themselves, take a moment to reflect on God's goodness to Saul here. God's goodness in giving Saul signs. God is working to strengthen Saul's faith by graciously giving him extraordinary signs. And these signs are extraordinary as we look at them. First, he's going to meet these two men who are going to give him a message from his father. Then he will go on his way and meet three other men who are going up to Bethel, who will give him food, and finally, and most dramatically, the Spirit of the Lord will rush on Saul, and he will prophesy. That last sign in particular stands out, because it's a a sign for Saul, 
and it's also a sign for everyone else. This, when we, we see that it happens, the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him, and people notice. It's a very public sign. Look at verses 11 to 12. There's even a proverb that comes out of this event. Now, Saul receives the Spirit as confirmation of God's choice to make him king. The event is for his own good, but it's also confirmation for others that God has chosen Saul, though they don't understand the significance at the time. And especially this last sign, this gift of the Holy Spirit, setting apart Saul for ministry, ministry as his king, this really points to the fourth and final aspect of God's control in these events. And it's that God is equipping Saul to be king. He's not just appointing him, he's also equipping him. You can see that actually in all of chapter 10, verses 1, all the way to the end of our passage in verse 16. We see the first part of this equipping in the gift of the Spirit. As the Spirit rushes on Saul, you can think about this has happened before in the life of Israel. Think about the experience of Samson. At critical times in Samson's life, God has sent the Spirit rushing on him, using the same word, rushing on him to accomplish great things like defeating the Philistines. But it's not just Samson. This is going to happen again in 1 Samuel, in the life of David. When David is anointed, the exact same phrase is used, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. And from that time forward, David begins to act as the king. So in the cases of Samson and Saul and David, God sends his Holy Spirit to equip them for his work. And in the case of Saul and David, the presence of the Holy Spirit is, is more permanent. Even for someone like Saul who ends up rejecting God, Saul has the Spirit from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 16 when David is finally anointed. So God is giving Saul the Spirit to equip him. He is dramatically, publicly equipping him with his Spirit to be his anointed king. The Lord also equips him in another way. He equips Saul to be his king by providing Saul with his word and his worship. Notice in particular verses 7 to 8, Samuel directs Saul in what to do. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait for me until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Samuel here is announcing God's word to Saul. Do what your hand finds to do. Go to Gilgal, wait for me, and I, as the prophet, will show you what to do. The point here is that Saul the king must still submit to God's work in, in God's word. In fact, he actually needs God's word in order to know what to do next. And Saul also needs God's worship. Notice that he's going down to Gilgal to join Samuel in the sacrifices. The point is that Saul can't act independently as king. God has equipped him with his spirit, yes, but God will continue to equip him and guide him with his word and his worship. So Saul goes home. People ask him what has happened, and he only tells half the story. 
There's a whole lot more that has happened to Saul, much more dramatic things that have happened to Saul. What are we supposed to make of Saul here? We've seen a lot of what God has done, and we've had this kind of odd story about what he tells to his, his father when he gets back. What are we supposed to make of Saul in chapters 9 and 10? He's been appointed and equipped by God to be the king, but many of us, we've read the rest of the story. We know, this, we know how this turns out. Saul's going to reject God, and God will reject him as well. I'll say for now that these chapters 9 and 10, they, they raise issues which will reappear later. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to pass judgment on Saul yet, but there are concerns already. Um, are Saul's looks, for instance, they're highlighted in the first few verses. Are Saul's looks really a qualification to be a godly king? You know, if you flip back to what we read last week from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, the looks of a king are never talked about. No, it's actually the godliness of a king, the king's respect for God's law that's emphasized. Or look a little further in our passage, why doesn't Saul know that Samuel lives in the city near where they stop? It's very striking. It's the servant who points it out. Saul doesn't even seem to know that Samuel lives there. And the text is silent about whether Saul actually obeys Samuel command, Samuel's command to go and wait at Gilgal. And what also about the people's surprise at finding Saul prophesying? Isn't that striking? Uh, I mean, the text leaves us with lots of questions about whether Saul will prove to be a faithful and godly king. But what is clear what is clear in these chapters is that God is in charge. He's in charge from start to finish to appoint and equip Saul to be his king. That was true for God's choice of Saul and David and all of his earthly kings. And how much more is it true that God was in control to choose Jesus as our king? God appointed Jesus, his own son, to be the king is part of the plan of salvation from eternity past. All the kings of the Old Testament are just pointing forward to Jesus and the salvation that he brings. When Jesus was born, he was born as a king. He's acknowledged that way by the angels and by the wise men. They worship him as the king. It's true, he might not have looked like a king. Isaiah 52, 53 brings that out very clearly. He didn't look like a king. But that's exactly why he was the perfect, godly, faithful king, because he suffered. He suffered to rule. Think also about when Jesus began his work. He was anointed and equipped by, to be our king by the same Holy Spirit that God poured out on Saul. We see this anointing and equipping at Jesus' baptism. We looked at this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, the king, received the fullness of the Spirit. And unlike Saul, that Holy Spirit would never, ever leave him. And Jesus needed that Spirit in his fullness and in his permanence because as king, he was going to save us, his people. He went to war with his enemies, with Satan and sin and death in order to save us. And this salvation cost him his life. He did that work, and he did it for the same reason that we see in our passage. Because the reason that the Father appointed and equipped Jesus to be the king 
to do that work. And the reason that Jesus agreed to come to serve, to fight, and to die was because of the compassion God has for us. Because he has chosen us in eternity past. And even though we never, ever called on him for help, he showed his compassion by saving us from our sins and making us his people. So as we see King Saul, and especially as we see King Jesus, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that God has sovereignly appointed and equipped Jesus to be the king to save us and to rule over us. There are no concerns, no concerns about the character or qualifications of King Jesus. He is and will always be the perfect, godly, powerful, compassionate king that we need. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your control, not only in our own lives, but especially as we see the plan of salvation being unfolded in the life of Saul as king, and especially in the life of ministry of Jesus, our king. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you and to worship you for what you've done for us and what you will do for us. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.